0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Mortezo Haji your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm very honored to be speaking to Dr. Mauro Rasmini. Uh, Dr. Mauro Rasmini is an Associate Professor of Cinema and Media Studies and Italian at the University of Maryland. And today, uh, he'll be talking to us about a wonderful book uh, he wrote, which, which is called Italian Political Cinema. Figures of the Long 68, a book published by uh, Minnesota University Press. Uh, Mauro, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you, Morteza, and thank you for having me. Uh, To start with, can you introduce yourself a little bit and tell us how you uh, got interested into media studies and Italian cinema?
1: Yeah, so... um... I mean, as, as as you just said, I'm associate professor of cinema and media studies in Italian at the University of Maryland in College Park. Um, my general field of expertise is um, kind of like more uh, uh, oriented toward film studies, specifically, and Italian cinema uh, in particular. Um, more broadly, I'm interested in the connection between aesthetics and politics, uh, which I approach from you know a, a critical theory informed perspective. Uh, So it's, uh, you know, Marx on one hand and then uh, Freud and Lacan uh, on on the other. And this is something that it's uh, kind of prominently displayed in a way and and informs the book in in significant ways. Um, The the idea for this book came from, I mean, it's it's partly kind of like an outgrowth of my dissertation um, in the sense that uh, parts of my dissertation were looking at 1968 within the Italian context, but from a, a contemporary perspective, so looking at Cultural artifacts, cultural products, especially media products, um, they were kind of like thematizing and and kind of like reflecting on uh, 1968 uh, with a 30, 40 year. Uh, hindsight, uh, basically. And then, um, kind of like, what kind of spurred me into making The Long 68 uh, and the cinema of The Long 68 kind of like a central question for me was uh, this kind of like lack that I noticed of a comprehensive study of Italian political cinema within the Anglo-American context. This is something that is not necessarily true for the Italian context in which political cinema has been discussed uh, extensively uh, in and around 68, but also later on. Um, whereas in uh, the Anglo-American context, this is something that, uh, you know, has been kind of, like, uh, neglected, uh, apart from, you know, individual studies on specific directors. Um, and this is one thing. So there is this kind of, like, you know, this, this uh, kind of, like, lack uh, in, in scholarship. And then the other thing is kind of, like, uh, uh, this, this waning interest that I saw, starting from the 70s on, um, in interrogating the status of political cinema. On, on an ontological level, basically. So, uh, I mean, there's a lot of talk about politics and cinema and political cinema nowadays, even within the Italian context to some extent. I mean, there's like very good books on contemporary Italian cinema, contemporary political Italian cinema. Um, but it seems to me that uh, uh, the, the desire to interrogate this relationship between cinema and politics, which for me is far from self-evident, um, has been uh, has been a little abandoned. Uh, that, that was my that was my sense and so what I wanted to do was kind of like combining these two uh, kind of like uh, um uh, urges or or kind of like motivation so on the one hand you know the the lack of a comprehensive study of Italian political cinema on the other the desire to interrogate on a very basic level the relationship between cinema and politics these two questions kind of like give shape to to the book in the form in which it is right now
0: uh great uh, and and before we start talking about the book I'd like to say to our listeners that uh, I've been a fan of italian cinema but when i read the book i just came across a lot of movies a lot of great movies that i hadn't seen and i made a list for myself to watch them later on so it's it's a promise to you so when you you will <laughs> read the book you will be enlightened at the same time you'll have a great list of films to watch uh that's, so that's
1: good uh, yeah i'll be i'll be in touch in a, in, a, in a couple of months to see where you are with your with your
0: <laughs> you're your watching list <laughs> great So let's get some definitions uh, before talking about the book. What what do you mean by the long 68? And why did you particularly choose this time period?
1: So um, 68, of course, names uh, a lot of things in a lot of different contexts. Uh, In general, it is a moment of like particular um, uh, cultural, social, political, even economic uh, transition and turmoil and transformation uh, in global history, I would say um specifically the italian 68 uh, within the context of european 68s <laughs> um has its own kind of like singularity i would say in the sense that uh, it, it is as i suggest uh, in the in the title of the book using a kind of like a, an expression that is kind of like common sense and part of the common parlance right now it is a long 68 it means that uh, uh in italy as opposed to france for instance 68 um, lasted for a long time and uh, some would say from this is kind of like the more kind of like comprehensive definition of it uh, some would say from uh, the, the mid to late 60s until the early 80s okay um, this is of course very different from anything you see in France for instance in which kind of like the opposite happens uh, the, the, the French May is uh, it's kind of like um, I mean it's, it's a very sudden manifestation uh, of, um, of revolt, uh, basically. And uh, it doesn't last very long. It is very intense. It includes like, you know, general strike, for instance, um, and a kind of like a, a short-lived but extremely fruitful, I would say, alliance between the students and the workers. Um, but it doesn't last very long. Uh, whereas in Italy, we ha- had to basically coin a specific expression to, to explain what happened. And, you know, the long 68 is one of them. The other one is the creeping May um, in, in Italian, it would be Maggio uh, Stresciante, which suggests precisely this kind of like a uh, form of struggle and transformation of society, politics, culture um, that is like very slow and doesn't really, um, doesn't really encounter any kind of like, you know, specific kind of like evental explosion uh, that would change everything. Uh, whereas, in, in because in Italy, like I said, it's precisely this kind of like slow burn uh, basically that uh, is made up of like smaller events. Um, some of which are more significant than others, obviously, but, um, it kind of like establishes this temporality of kind of like a slow movement, uh, uh, basically. And like I said, I mean, this is a time of crisis and transition. I mean, it is for everybody at this moment for like most of, uh, the countries who participate in this kind of like world global movement in a way. Um, And I use this term, time of crisis and transition in the book as well. This is an expression that I um, uh, borrow from uh, Ernst Bloch, which is gonna be also relevant in our discussion of the figure uh, maybe later on in in, in this interview. Um, The reason why 68 was important to me and why it's so interesting to study is because I think that in a way it establishes a certain kind of like um, the possibility of a genealogical reading for our present moment. In the sense that uh, if we want to understand anything what is happening today it is important to kind of like figure out and analyze and reflect on the moment in which the conditions for what is happening today uh, had been established um, and so 68 really is a, kind of like a parenthesis basically between uh, this moment of like you know growth and economic prosperity that happened in italy specifically right after uh, the the Second World War with the reconstruction, with rebuilding of the country, you know, foreign help, uh, financial help coming in with the Marshall Plan, uh, the Christian Democrats t- taking power uh, in the government. Um, and so you have this economic miracle, which then kind of like starts to fizzle out uh, by the mid 60s. Right. Um, and so by 68 and early 70s, that kind of impetus, that kind of like inertial movement of growth uh, starts to uh, to disappear, basically to, to fizzle out. Um, and then, of course, after the, uh, the, the, the long 68, we have the, the 80s, uh, which is the moment in which what we usually call and with the umbrella term neoliberalism. Uh, starts to assert itself uh, in Italy and and elsewhere uh, in Europe as well. And so a moment of crisis and transition in which you have, you know, the disintegration of collective, radical collective projects, uh, which kind of like, you know, develop in unexpected ways uh, in Italy, especially at the time, uh, but then also kind of like subside uh, into into the 80s as a result of a kind of like alienation and atomization of society. Um, we have the irreversible transformation of the terrain on which class struggle is is fought, um, and this is, a, you know, for the most part, kind of like a, a, a result of the initiative of capital, kind of like transforming itself and transforming the uh, production uh, process, basically, to counter um uh, the struggle that came from the working class the marketization of all aspects of life which is also kind of like the beginning of neoliberalism as we define it and know it uh today and then on the side of state power also reorganization of its power in terms of uh as a response to kind of like a changing geopolitical uh scenario um and so this kind of like series of interconnected events i think uh project an idea of 68 in which um, you know, the, the, a certain form of radical revolutionary politics uh, comes to an end, uh, and, uh, and it's complicated. It's, it's quite messy uh, as well. Um, but I think it's important to study it precisely in the way in which Badiou defines it, which is as a historical sequence. So a moment in history which was able to think and generate its own truths, Uh, That needs to be understood, again, if we want to understand anything of what is happening uh, nowadays. Uh, There's also, I mean, to kind of like uh, um, uh, add a little uh, kind of like polemic uh, spin to this, there is an interesting um, expression that is used by one of the theorists that are are, like discussed in the book, uh, Mario Tronti, uh, like a workerist, uh, operaista, thinker. from the 60s and 70s, he's also uh, quite active today, even though he abandoned that kind of like intellectual tradition traditional, renegotiated it a little bit. And looking back, like, you know, 20, 30 years after that moment in which he was a protagonist, uh, intellectual kind of like significant presence in uh, the debate uh, on the radical left. Uh, he said that, you know, with the end of 68, what you see is the defeat of the working class and of the great working class movement of the 20th century and with it the end of the 20th century. So uh, he's advocating for kind of like an even shorter 20th century, you know, from 1917 basically to, uh, or 1914, beginning of the, the First World War, uh, to uh, basically the, 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 the mid-70s or end of the 70s instead of, you know, waiting until 1989. Uh, which you know, some would say that you know that just ratifies a state of things that's already in place, uh, basically uh, by by the
0: mid seventies. Uh, this is an excellent background to the book, and I guess it puts it into better perspective when we talk about uh, uh, the theory of figure. And that was quite amazing to me. I so I because before reading the book, I thought you would be talking about movies, but you're actually focusing on set, uh, eight figures mm-hmm. say. so can you talk about the theory of figure first and then we'll go through some of these figures for example the figure of worker the figure of a housewife we'll talk about them as we go mm-hmm. further but can you talk about the theory of figure what do you mean by that
1: yeah so um i mean in order to be able to talk about the theory of the figure which is kind of like i think one of the um one of the theoretical contribution that the the book tries to make basically um it's it's kind of like important to kind of like think about how do we get to a theory of the figure? And and actually, I mean, on an even more basic level, why why is it at all necessary to have a theory of the figure? Why do we need a figure at all, in a way? And the answer to that is kind of like stems from this uh, interrogation, like I said before, of the sort of of the relationship between cinema and politics, right? So um, in Italian cinema, in Italian political cinema, um, there's always been this kind of like, assumption about this relationship and the assumption is that there is politics as some kind of like positive content and then there is cinema who kind of like absorbs this content and then stages it for the spectator right so uh, basically cinema functions as a sort of like medium uh, between the politics of a certain historical moment and then uh, the the you know the the, the audience uh, of, the, of that moment and this is the way in which most of the films that I actually discuss in the book have been Um, have been treated uh, as precisely expressions of politics, right? So uh, what I wanted to do with the book is to kind of like maybe complicate this a little bit um, and ask a very basic question again. So what is political cinema? What if political cinema, instead of signaling a certain kind of like direct transmission of the content of politics through cinema to the audience, actually signals something else, uh, maybe the, the expression political cinema is there to uh, kind of like hide the fact that there is no actual connection between cinema and politics. There's no direct, established, uh, guaranteed connection between cinema and politics. And so what I started is uh, uh, for, from this, I started from this idea of cinema and uh, political cinema as the name of a non-relation, right? So... Uh, If we start from this idea of this kind of like primacy of negativity, so saying that cinema and politics are not directly connected uh, by themselves, um, then we get to like interesting places, right? And This was kind kind of like the wager of the book. And the idea is that if there's no guaranteed linkage, then what you need to do with each individual film is to create that linkage over and over again. So to kind of like singularly invent a connection between cinema and politics, and each film does that in its own singular, unique way. And um, uh, this is where we get to the question of the figure. So the figure is what allow uh, what allows cinema to actually think politics, but in a way that is specifically cinematic. Okay. Um, and so the figure kind of like functions as this kind of like form of cinematic thought in a way. And, um, and of course, I mean, you know, figure as, you know, I, I'm sure your, your, your audience knows is a very over-determined, loaded uh, term. Okay. Uh, it means uh, a lot of different things for a lot of different authors in a lot of different historical periods and different disciplines. So of course, you know, the fundamental definition of the figure coming from art history is that of, you um, Uh, something that stands out against a background, okay? So this would be, you know, uh, Erwin Panofsky's definition, for instance. Um, What I wanted to do is kind of like look for a less orthodox understanding uh, of the figure. And I was able to find that within uh, a certain kind of like mostly but not only French uh, tradition, uh, so I'm looking at authors like Georges didier uh, who's also an art historian, although uh, adopting a different approach than Panofsky in a way. Um, and in cinema specifically, Nicole Brené, who published a book on the figure in cinema. Um, and then uh, in, in philosophy, uh, Alain Badiou and uh, Deleuze uh, as well. Um, So this idea of the figure, uh, the way I define it, kind of like in the wake of these thinkers, is a uh, kind of like a material, uh, visible support of a dialectical relation. Okay. Um, So for me, a figure is always a figure of the two. Okay. Uh, Order and chaos, form and the formless, and figuration and disfiguration. And it is important for me to highlight, and this is something I try to uh, emphasize in the book it is important to say that this is not just a simple dualism okay the two terms of the figure are not simply in a kind of like relation of you know inoperative externality okay they relate to one another and they co-determine uh, one another so what you see in the figure is this kind of like constant dialectical movement uh, between these two uh, uh, opposites uh, uh, basically so in the way in which they kind of like determine uh, uh, one another because of this dialectical movement of the figure the figure itself Resists representation. And this is something that kind of like further distances my reading of the figure from the classical art historical uh, conception, right? Um, uh, so figures do not do not simply represent content or things, okay? Of course, they have representational elements. So for instance, when we talk about the figure of the worker, there are some like traits or elements or features of the worker that make it recognizable as a worker. But in a way, this is just one, one precondition the work that the figure does is actually a dialectical work of tracing how this dialectical process uh, unfolds uh, uh, in a way. And in doing that, they don't simply represent things like inert content or positively existing content, um, but they actually perform some kind of thinking themselves. And this thinking is specifically uh, cinematic. This is why it is important for me to kind of like think about political cinema, not necessarily as a kind of like, you know, political manifestos or propaganda or call to arms, like militant call to arms. This is not exactly what, uh, uh, you know, uh, political cinema for me uh, is. It is more about this kind of like tension that is inscribed into the figure. And, you know, we can talk about that specifically when we get to the figure themselves in more concrete terms. Um, But it's kind of like tension that is inherent in the figure as a, figure of the two, that through this tension is able to give body and make visible this moment of crisis and transition that is the Long 68, right? So uh, what Bloch calls the uh, holes and hollow spaces uh, of history. In this holes and hollow spaces of history, what we see is the coming into being or the possibility of coming into being of political subjects, so radical political subjects. And so uh, uh, basically what. The political cinema does uh, in the way I describe it in the book is that it dramatizes a field of possibility or impossibility for the rise of uh, political subjectivities uh, in, in that specific historical moment. So it's kind of like, it's, it's almost like a diagnostic um, uh, device. So it tells us what is possible and what is impossible from the perspective of cinema in uh, political terms within a specific structural situation. Uh, which political cinema always, and especially Italian political cinema, always takes it takes into account. And so the, the distance between, you know, politics and cinema uh, is not simply like, um, you know, like pure autonomy in the way in which someone like Badiou would think about it, you know, in terms of, you know, there's art and there's politics and the two things don't talk to each other. Um, Or, you know, you can't really kind of like talk about, you know, political art in a way, according to Badiou, uh, because the two, uh, uh, you know, function according to different procedures and produce different truths, right? So this is not what I'm uh, advocating, not what I'm arguing, but I'm arguing that because of the non-relation, political cinema has to invent that linkage over and over and, uh, and over again. And so what you end up with looking at the long 68 from the perspective of cinema is what I call a dance of figures, um, this kind of like dramatization of the subjective political possibility of a historical moment, which one would understand, I think, in at a distance or in contradistinction, with respect to uh, what Paolo Virno, uh, one of the theorists of uh, post-workerism in, in Italy, uh, talked uh, talks about in terms of a carnival of subjectivities. So what for politics is a carnival of subjectivities, from uh, the standpoint of cinema, becomes a, a dance
0: uh, of figures. Now. To put it into perspective, let's talk about some of the figures. So, the first one that you discuss in the book is the figure of worker, and you mentioned a number of uh work movies there. One of them is The Working Class Goes to Heaven. So, can you talk about this figure of worker in relation to this movie and then tell us how this worker is both a protagonist and also at the same time a victim of the capitalist system?
1: Yes, um, so I mean, maybe you can talk more about that later, but there is a conscious decision in uh, uh, wanting, on my part, in wanting to make the worker the first figure that I discuss. Um, So this kind of like centrality of the worker is is crucial for me because in a way it allows me to think about all the other figures uh, in a way that is inflected by the figure of the worker, right? Um, In the sense, I guess, you know, from a kind of like a, a like a historical long durée uh, kind of uh, position, I would say that I agree with what Tronti says that you know the defeat of the workers' movement in the in the 70s um, is what then determines basically the political stage uh, for the decades to come uh, in one way or another, like positively or negatively. Um, so uh, if we are to kind of like think about the figure of the worker in Italian cinema. And maybe not only in Italian cinema, I think we can uh, talk about two different figures, right? So there is, um, uh, with, with the 60s as the watershed, like the early 60s as the watershed, the historical watershed. Um, there, is, there is one figure of the worker, which is the one that was born in the fire of the October Revolution. Uh, the hero of the, 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 the Bolshevik revolution, uh, which then goes on to become in a way kind of like the dominant political figure, the hegemonic political figure uh, for the decades uh, to come, basically from uh, the 20s to the beginning of the Second World War. Um, in Italy specifically, this is, I mean, th- there's, a, there's a whole iconology of this worker uh, because of a specific kind of like event that took place uh what is called the biennio rosso the two red years uh 1919 and 1920 um which incidentally of course also marked the beginning of the the the, the fascist uh, adventure um and uh, this worker is the protagonist of that historical moment with like strikes and protests and like different forms of rebellion um uh, factory occupations uh, and and so forth and so in this moment this is the moment in which like the the soviet influence the soviet model becomes is the most significant for the italian uh, communist left uh, of the time um, this for instance is is the type of worker the figure of the worker that is uh, depicted in Mario Monicelli's The Organizer uh, I-, I Compagni. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you see that, th- this kind of like element at work um, there. Um, this is also a, uh, a worker who took pride uh, in his craft. And, and it's also a worker who felt like you know, the, 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 the destiny of the country rested on his shoulder. And so, this is a worker who feels like part of a much larger project of nation building, uh, basically. So, we're talking about a skilled worker here. Um, then, in the beginning of the '60s, um, and here the baptism of fire would be, I think, the revolt in Piazza Statuto, which is 1962, if I'm not mistaken, in Turin, uh, in which basically a new figure of the worker comes onto uh, the stage. Uh, this worker is precarious; it's uh, he is disskilled. Uh, and it is a worker who's coming from the South, uh, young, poor, mostly, for the most part, illiterate. And he's coming to the industrialized north of Italy to find uh, work, basically, and a better way of life, kind of like to escape, like, extreme uh, poverty. Um This worker, like I said, kind of like comes onto the stage in the early 60s and then reaches its apex of political significance in 1969 uh, with what is called the uh, Autunno caldo, the hot autumn, which is like a series of strikes, kind of like like a really a tidal wave of strikes basically traverses uh, Italy. This worker is not a worker who's taking any pride in its craft, also because, um, you know, the the levels of the rates of exploitation have gone up from, you know, the previous uh, uh, um, uh, figure of the worker that I just described. Uh, And so this worker here is not interested at all in any kind of like um, participation in a nation-building project. It reje- he rejects entirely the mediation of the unions in any kind of like political-economic struggle with uh, uh, ownership, with capital. Um, it rejects capital exp- capitalist exploitation, uh, um, um, like the uh, two core, basically, and looks to dismantle the productive system altogether. So, its demands and its politics and his demands and his politics are much more radical. Uh, than the, those of the previous uh, uh, worker. Um, and so the, the animating desire of this figure is that of satisfying material needs. So very basic uh, in a way. Um, and this is, you know, what the Italian workerists called the rude razza pagana, the uh, rude uh, or rough uh, pagan uh, race, um, uh, which was immune to ideological capture into, like I said, projects of uh, nation building and They're like refractory uh, to any kind of cooptation into like union led negotiations and so much more unruly in a way and much more difficult to control, but also much more radical in its uh, uh, kind of like uh, acts of defiance uh, uh, against capital. And the working class goes to heaven, which you just mentioned and is the film that the first film that I analyze in a way kind of like tries to map out the shift from one worker uh, to the other. Because you have both in the film, right? I mean, you have the the Stakhanovite, uh, uh, played by Gian uh, maria Volonté, Lulu Massa, who is the protagonist, who comes into contact with this kind of like new breed of workers, um, much more radical, um, much more, like I said, interest in, you know, satisfaction of immediate material needs and so forth. And this encounter, coupled with an accident that happens at the factory, completely changes his outlook. Okay, So uh, from a staccanovite um, uh, and also a scab, uh, he becomes much more involved and interested in the, the struggle that is burgeoning in the factory at the time, uh, predicated on uh, a kind of like um, alliance between the workers and, uh, and the, the students, which the film kind of like um, prominently uh, uh, displays. Um, the reason why I'm so interested in this is not just a historical one, but it's also kind of like a formal, logical one. And it's the fact that the film is able to uh, trace the process of subjectivation that I just mentioned uh, moments ago. Uh, basically, it provides us with, it, it, the way I read it, it provides us with the matrix for understanding how uh, cinema can think the coming into being of a radical political subjectivity um kind of like a matrix through which the the the, the sub- political subjectivity uh, in a time of crisis uh, is is made visible uh basically um to answer your question about you know how's the figure both uh, the figure of the worker both a protagonist and a victim of the capitalist system um i mean there is a there is a kind of like a, a pretty straightforward marxist point here that i try to kind of like further articulate in the book in relation Uh, to cinema, Um, and it's this idea of the worker as the fundamental point of articulation of the capitalist system, right? So uh, the worker is the owner of the only commodity that can add value to other commodities, which is labor power, basically. Um, So the use value of labor power is to create surplus value uh, in other commodities. And so uh, on the one hand, he is the fundamental precondition, the worker is the fundamental precondition of capitalist accumulation. And on the other hand, he's also the target of like ruthless exploitation uh, on the part uh, of of the capitalist. And so it's uh, really interesting to me because the worker stands in this kind of like unique position at the very center of uh, the capitalist uh, system of of production. Um, And, you know, like I said, this is something that, uh, I, I find particularly, you know, uh, fertile for thinking about uh, how political subjectivities can come into being in this time of like uh,
0: crisis and transition that is the 1968. And, and the next figure is, and I need to say this, uh, that like I said at the beginning, I, there, I hadn't seen many of the movies you mentioned in the movie, but from the movies that I'd say, the more famous mainstream movies in Italian cinema, these figures were quite prominent in them as well. So when you were talking, for example, the figure of a worker and then the figure of a housewife, you said, yep, I've seen this figure in many Italian films. So in the next figure you talk about is the figure of the housewife and her domestic labor. So how does that figure manifest new forms of a struggle in, in Italian political cinema?
1: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's exactly like you said. I mean, the figure of the housewife is, in a way, a... I mean, I I call it a receding figure in the sense that it is omnipresent. So if you look at, you know, really kind of like any Italian film, it is very likely that you will see some kind of like some kind of iteration of the figure of the housewife uh, kind of like uh, roaming through the apartment, you know, making coffee, like preparing dinner. Uh, getting the kids ready for school and, you know, consoling the uh, exploited husband coming back from the factory and so forth. So uh, The Housewife is in a way everywhere, but very rarely occupies kind of like a position of the, the position of the protagonist, uh, basically. And so um, so what I wanted to do with The Housewife uh, is to kind of like look at this figure and try to provide like a partisan tendentious reading of some films and to make that figure into an actual protagonist, to see how it works and how it relates to the figure of the worker, and why and explain why it's important to uh, talk about it in detail. Um, this is something that in a way was also uh, you know called for uh, by the uh, you know the theoretical uh, radical tradition of the 70s themselves, uh, because you know the 60s and the 70s are a moment in which new forms of feminism, come onto the stage, uh, and especially I was very much interested in uh, the, you know, uh, uh, Italian-based but uh, uh, international invocation, um, uh, wages for housework uh, movement, um, and, uh, you know, in, in wages for housework, what you have is this kind of like call for subjectivity in a way, or kind of like a provocation that would lead to a subjectivation, a political subjectivation of the, of the housewife, which is Basically, demanding a wage for uh, reproductive labor, mm. uh, which has always been historically seen and, and cast, not least by the capitalist system itself, by a labor of, uh, as a labor of love, basically. So something that you know you do because you care, um, not because the system requires you to. <clears throat> the fact that the system itself is predicated on someone doing that work unpaid is something that you know goes unsaid, basically. Mm. Um, And so uh, kind of like looking at the figure of the housewife through the lens provided by the theorists of the Wages for Housework movement. So, you know, uh, Dalla Costa, Fortunati, Federici. Um, So what I tried to do is to kind of like look at how how the housewife presents itself as a figure in a series of Mm -hmm. films. And Mm -hmm. I start from a a kind of like almost a a sort of like a pre-subjective moment, almost like a prehistory of the housewife as a political subject in a 1964 film by Marco Ferreri, which is called The Ape Woman. Mm. And there you see kind of like, in, it's only suggested in a way, but it's already the beginning of a certain way of thinking about the housewife. Um, it's only suggested that the role that Wage plays in, in a way, liberating the woman uh, from the yoke of, you know, uh, unpaid reproductive labor to some extent. It's not fleshed out, but it, it introduces this kind of like different vision. Uh, in a way, before the uh, wages for housework theorists were even thinking about it, right? So kind of like, again, you know, kind of like a, a signaling this kind of like uh, the, the, the lack of unnecessary and assumed synchronicity between politics and cinema. You know? Sometimes cinema thinks about things that politics hasn't thought of yet. Um, and of course, it doesn't formalize it in the way in which politics or political thought does, uh, but it kind of like introduces this idea to some extent. Mm-hmm. Then I go back to the working class goes to heaven to look at uh, le, le, the protagonist's partner, who plays the role of a, uh, played by Mariangela Melato, who plays the role of, uh, uh, of the housewife. And uh, in that film, she introduces this idea of a demand and the way in which, when you're making a demand, that is not, you know, invited by by anybody, it's also not a concession given by um, the capitalist system, when you're kind of like voicing your desire in this kind of like forceful way, regardless of what that desire is, you're already introducing a certain kind of, um, uh, 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 kind of like a subjective possibility, okay? The possibility of turning yourself into an active agent subject in that sense. Um, And then I move on to kind of like the centerpiece of the chapter, which is, uh, a special day uh, by Ettore yeah. Scola, uh, featuring you know the the, the famous couple um, uh, Sofia Loren and uh, Marcello Mastroianni, uh, which in a way is is the counterpart of the working class goes to heaven for the housewife, in the sense that it provides us with the most kind of like sophisticated and extensive unfolding of the subjectivity of the housewife. Uh, you know, it's set in fascist Italy during during the fascist era, actually on the day in which Hitler visited Rome. And um, it is predicated on this encounter, right? This moment of subjectivation is predicated on the encounter between this uh, uh, fascist housewife um, and uh, this uh, queer radio announcer who is getting ready to be deported uh, because of of his uh, homosexuality. Um, And uh, the encounter between the two uh, generates this kind of like moment of anxiety in The, in the Housewife, played by Sophia Loren, uh, because she sees kind of like the, uh, all her certainties about her identifications with the fascist regime, with the role that the fascist regime wants her to play um, uh, as, a, as a housewife, so devoted to the husband, devoted to the children, without any time for herself, without any desires for herself, without any kind of like independent identity from that of the family uh, and so forth. Uh, this encounter with uh, Marcello Mastroianni's character uh, generates a certain anxiety, and then even a moment of, like, you know, courage on her part to kind of, like, maybe, possibly, we don't know. The film ends before this is uh, ascertained, uh, maybe even a possibility of a certain kind of rebellion uh, against the, the the role that uh, a fascist society imposes imposes on her. And then in the last part of the chapter, I look at two films that. Um, like a very different from uh, anything else that I describe and uh, discuss in this chapter. One is Red Desert by Michelangelo Antonioni, and the other one is uh, Dillinger is Dead by Marco Ferreri. And what I want to see with these two films, what I wanted to see with these two films is what happens when you decouple uh, the housewife from housework. And uh, in the case of Red Desert, what you have is a, a housewife without housework, because Monica Vitti plays a bourgeois housewife uh, <laughs> that living a life in which, uh, you know, all the uh, duties that she needs to perform in relation to her housework are actually performed by somebody else. And then, so the, the you know, a, a housemaid. Um, and then we have the, the uh, example of uh, Dillinger is dead, in which what you have is housework without a housewife. So the housework is there. Uh, the protagonist of the film is always busy, you know, like uh, uh, cooking dinner, like perusing the house, and and so forth. Um, uh, but this time, you know, he's not a housewife. He's actually a, a bourgeois man, like an engineer, right? So the question for me was: so what do you what What happens when you kind of like uh, decouple these two elements that in the other films are kind of like uh, closely closely tied?
0: Mm. So when you were talking about the figure of housewife, somebody who consoles uh, a distressed husband when he comes back from factory, I was immediately reminded of a, a bicycle thief. Um, and as you mentioned, this figure is kind of ubiquitous in many Italian uh, films, and you just can't miss it. You will see it there. And the other similar figure is the figure of youth, uh, which is the next figure you discuss in in the in the book. The figure of youth. So can you tell us how this? Figure what what a particular light was that you show that with this figure of youth, there is this kind of transitioning away from this collective identity of workers into a more uh, in, into more individuality. So, can I talk about uh, this figure, how it dismantles the structures of power, and how how does it manifest a shift towards a more individual identity rather than a collective identity?
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, one could argue that you know the worker. Occurred- the housewife, uh, to some extent, and certainly the youth, are kind of like you know the, the triad of fundamental figures that one would associate with the imaginary of 1968. Um, the youth here is, the, the youth that I talk about in in, uh, in relation to the films is predominantly like a male and bourgeois, a young man, basically. Um, and to me, it was interesting to look at the youth because it, it is, of the three, also, I think, the most elusive. OK, because, I mean, the youth is uh, to some extent as a political subject is to some extent a modern invention. Um, one could argue that it's, uh, it's precisely in the 60s that the youth kind of like comes onto the stage as a political agent. OK, um, it was certainly kind of like, you know, a, a propaganda element in during the fascist uh, regime. But as a kind of like autonomous political subject with its own, his own desires. Uh, with their own um, uh, kind of like needs, with their own visions. Uh, It it is an invention of the 60s to some extent. I mean, think about, you know, all the questions like counterculture, youth culture, uh, and so forth. Um, So the interesting thing about the youth for me is the fact that, I mean, youth is not a receding figure in the sense that, you know, it's front and center uh, in many of the films that I analyze. Um, but it's also true that it's not necessarily kind of like, a, uh, does not really occupy a proper kind of like politically central position in the sense that it, the politics of the youth is a lot more vague and ambiguous than those of the worker, uh, for instance. So the youth is in a way kind of like everywhere. And by being everywhere, it's all, it also signals this kind of like dissemination of politics into the fabric uh, of society. um, And the the kind of like the the antagonistic impetus of the youth is much less focused than that of the worker. I mean, the worker situates itself squarely in in the relationship, the antagonistic relationship between labor and capital. Whereas for the youth, it's a lot more complicated because, I mean, it is in a way a social category, sociological category, but it's also kind of like a generational category, like youth itself. And so... Uh, its antagonism is directed at all the institutions that they perceive were um, kind of like uh, uh, assuring the ensuring the oppressive character of the society in which they were living. So you know the state, of course, uh, the education system, the church, even the party to some extent, the family certainly, and so forth. So this kind of antagonism, because you know, becomes in a way dispersed, and it seems to me that this can be read as a sort of like. Um, uh, symptom also and consequence of the undoing of the central position that the worker occupies uh, in the second half of the 20th century. You know, this kind of like dissemination and dispersion of uh, political uh, antagonism. And so, um, like you said, we move away from the universalist collective project of the working class or the proletariat as a subject of history in a way. And we move into a, a different situation in which it is the irreducible singularity of the individual's desire for freedom, for instance, for enjoyment, um, that kind of like underpins political action. Okay. And so the problem of the youth in a way, the kind of like impasse that he, he, he is kind of like, the, the trying to figure out is to how, um, uh, uh, square up basically the relationship between the individual's desire for freedom and liberation and um, a, a more kind of like collective universalistic uh, project political project okay so this is kind of like the tension uh, <clears throat> that i that i that i see there so the liberation of individual desires how does that relate and does it relate to uh, a more universalist uh, collective uh, collective project and so basically what i do in the in the in the chapter is kind of like looking at how this desiring subjectivity which is always connected in one way or another to sexuality uh, of the youth um, it relates to the reactive feedback of the structure structure understood as you know state, family, church, you know, the, the the powers that be, okay? So the, the kind of like the fundamental institutions that uh, determine for the large part uh, life in Italy uh, at that moment. And so what I do is basically kind of like try to um, trace this arc of the youth from uh, a kind of like pre-1968 moment, uh, which is marked by two of the most famously prescient films on 1968, which were actually released before. One is Fist in the Pocket by uh, Marco Bellocchio, and the other one is Before the Revolution by Bernardo Bertolucci. The, the two are usually analyzed and discussed together, even though they, uh, they're they very different uh, in, in many ways. Uh, but they kind of like try to give form to the sense of rebellion that is brewing at the heart of the Italian youth uh, of the time, especially the, the, the bourgeois youth uh, of the time, then I move on to kind of like the most, uh, uh, I would say, kind of like symbolic representation of youth rebellion uh, in, in Italian cinema of the time. Uh, very much a byproduct of 1968, which is the Cannibals by Liliana Cavani, um, which it's basically a retelling of Antigone, <clears throat> the Sophoclean tragedy, um, set in contemporary Milan. Um, and so we, we see how she kind of like negotiates this relationship between the liberation of individual desire, but also the desire to topple, you know, institutions uh, that are oppressing, you know, the the the, the Italian society basically. Um, and Cavani shows that in a very kind of like literal way. I mean, it is the story of a of a of a revolt basically, um, and and also of the way in which the the system responds to that revolt. Because the matter, the, the, what is important to highlight is the fact that for Italian cinema, for the most part of the films that I analyze, it's not just the pure gesture of rebellion from the youth, it's also the way in which the system, the state, for instance, in the case of the cannibals, is able to absorb that rebellion and use it to its own advantage. There is a moment in which one of the um, uh, kind of like, uh, um, you know, the, the, the members of the state, you know, the elite in the film, in this case, uh, you know, Professor um, says something to the the rebellious youth who plays Antigone. uh, Says something to the effect of, you know, don't you know that we all need? When she's been, and he says that when she's been arrested, uh, he says, don't you know that we, you know, all the structures of power need uh, the rebels because that's what keep the, the institutions young in a way. So kind of like a a very pessimistic turn in the sense, kind of like talking about the idea of the state as an entity that's able to uh, absorb and metabolize um, uh, all the different kind of like um, uh, pushes for for rebellion and and revolt. And then I kind of like look at the the, the fading arc of the youth as a political subject with uh, uh, three films from the 70s, two by Nanni Moretti, one by Claudio Caligari, I Am Self-Sufficient and Nature Bombo by Moretti and the Toxic Love uh, by Caligari. And then I end with uh, uh, one of the most, uh, I would say one of the most bitter uh, films in the history of Italian cinema, which is An Average Little Man uh, by uh, Mario Monicelli, in which the youth is basically, what is shown and depicted there is kind of like the undoing of the very possibility of the youth as a a radical political subject. And uh, you, you
0: you go to pasolini in in the movie, the the for the figure of saint as both a product of the system and also an outcast of the system can you talk about the figure of saint please in the movie
1: yeah so the chapter on the saint is uh, is different from any of the other chapters because it is in a way i mean it, it is shorter but it's also focused on not only just two films uh, but two films by the same author uh pia paolo pasolini as you as you just said so um Originally, the saint was kind of like part of the chapter on the, um, uh, on the youth. But then I, I figure that, uh, you know, it, it, it had its own. It became clear to me that it, it needed to have its own autonomy from the figure of the youth. Um, this also means that the two are connected. And I see them and I present them as connected. So for me, the saint functions as a sort of um, radicalization of the figure of the youth. So in a way, many of the demands that were inscribed into the figure of the youth in Italian cinema are taken up again by the figure of the saint, but pushed uh, uh, to m- much more toward the extreme. Uh, in a way, um, I focus on Pasolini because, I mean, Pasolini was uh, well; he was fond of saints uh, in general. Uh, he said repeatedly that he liked he liked to uh, to side with the saint. I mean, that's also the epigraph of the of the chapter. Um, And he's also someone who kind of like tried to think about the relationship between the youth and the saint, because for him, you know, the youth, and especially the young body, the young male body, uh, always had a certain kind of like uh, uh, sacredness to it. Okay, Because for him was a symbol of innocence, authenticity and purity in a historical moment dominated by what he called like neo-capitalism. Um, which was basically kind of like uh, imposing, like, um, you know, conformism, uh, that's what he called it. Um, and, and he saw precisely the, 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 the young body as a, as, a, as a site in which a certain kind of like rebellion or resistance to the homologation and kind of like conformism of, uh, um, of uh, neo-capitalist society uh, could happen. Um, but then, you know, once he gets to the end of his career, um, as a filmmaker, uh, and not long before he was killed in 1975, um, he publishes you know, a, a very short but extremely self-critical and crucial uh, document, which is called The Repudiation of the Trilogy of Life, um, in which he basically says, uh, well, you know, my understanding of the, 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 the you, you know, uh, youth sexuality and the young body as a site of purity, uh, as a uh, kind of like a beacon of hope uh, in the dark land of neo-capitalism was misguided, and he's doing this kind of like self-criticism by saying, "No, I mean, I was what was what I was not able to see was that um, uh, in fact the young body was and the youth, especially even the sub-proletarian youth that he was so fond of, uh, had already been co-opted into the system itself." So, kind of like going along with what I was saying about the youth uh, um, in the in what I just said, answering to your previous question, right? So, the idea that there is a any kind of like you know impetus of rebellion can always be reabsorbed into the functioning of the status quo and the functioning of the structure. So, Pasolini understood that uh, after he finished the trilogy of life, um, and so it seems to me that you know it's. Uh, in a way, if, we, if one wants to look for a political subject or the beginning or the dramatization of a political uh, subjectivity uh, in Pasolini, it makes more sense to look for it in relation to the saint than in relation to the youth, because I think it is with the saint in its connection with the figure of the youth, but also in its autonomy, that uh, a, a certain kind of like articulation of political subjectivity in Pasolini can, can happen. And so what I do is basically look at um, uh, uh, you know, the, the saint as a sort of, like I said, a sort of intensification and displacement of the figure of the youth in two films. Uh, one is uh, Teorema, um, and the other one is Pigsty, one from 1968 the other one from 1969. And uh, it, you know, in, the, in the two films, you have like basically three figures of the saint, or three iterations of the figure of the saint. In Teorema, you have the mystic, uh, played by the housemaid, um, I mean, I don't know how how, how much your audience is uh, is uh, familiar with Teorema, but I mean, the story is kind of like um, uh, uh, archety- ar- archetypal, kind of like canonical at this point. Um, it's been like remade multiple times. It's basically the story of this kind of like wealthy bourgeois family in Milan. Uh, a, a, a mysterious visitor played by Terence Stamp uh, arrives uh, uh, in the, in the in the midst of the of the family. Uh, he is seduced by all the members of the family. He has sex with all of them. And then when suddenly he has to leave without any kind of explanation, on, or either on who he is or where he's going or what he's up to or anything, or even his name, um, when he leaves, the family is left in complete disarray. And each of the members of the family reacts to the, 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 the departure of the visitor in different ways. And one of them is the housemaid. Uh, who is the only non-bourgeois element in the family, who becomes a mystic, basically, performing miracles and and so forth. So in relation to the figure of the youth, this kind of like visitor coming in and disrupting the life of the bourgeois family, we have the generation, the creation of the figure uh, of the saint, uh, uh, who is the only one, uh, uh, which is not by chance, of course, in Pasolini, who is the only one who is actually able to... um, remain, uh, kind of like show some kind of fidelity to the event of the arrival of the visitor. Because all the others, they all try to recapture that moment of kind of like um, uh, freedom that they had um, uh, with the visitor. And they, they remain kind of like stuck in this kind of like melancholic attachment to that moment. Some of them go mad, um, uh, other become like obsessive and so forth. Uh, whereas the, the the figure of the housemaid is the only one who doesn't try to recapture that moment, but is able to actually <clears throat> live out the consequence uh, of that encounter. And then, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> and then you have the figure uh, of the saint in pigsty, which is kind of like redoubled uh, into the son of a wealthy German industrialist uh, right after uh, the, the Second World War and uh, the figure of the cannibal. Uh, in an unspecified, possibly renaissance uh, time in, in Italy, it who's kind of like this cannibal who's roaming around um, just outside the walls of a city. And um, both of them, in the end, meet their demise. So uh, the saint is, in the end, presented by Pasolini as a sort of like a figure of uh, defeat to some extent because, I mean, they, they, they're able to bear the weight of the radicalism of their demands, and the radicalism of their fidelity to their own desire. But at the same time, their quest is in a way, uh, solitary in in, individual. So what is missing there is in this kind of like ethical project of, you know, uh, being uh, true to your own desire, remain uh, loyal and continue to believe in your own desire. What is missing is the kind of like universalist collective project. Uh, right. And so in the end, the saint remains a, as a kind of like a like an ambiguous figure of of radicalism, but also of defeat.
0: And, and what about the figure of Spectre? That's where you talk about you bring up Derrida's ideas of ontology. How does this figure blur the lines of identity and also moves away from class based identity in, in Italian political cinema?
1: So, yeah, I mean, like I said before, um, uh, what I what I tried to do with the book is to kind of like, I mean, look at certainly figures that are central in the imaginary of 68, but also to look at um, figures that uh, that are not and that uh, cinema itself in a way invents to think about 1968. And this, for me, is kind of like, I mean, I see it as a, maybe self-servingly, but I see it as a confirmation of the idea that cinema and politics do not always move in lockstep, okay? So cinema has its own way of thinking about 68, and part of this thinking about 68 is precisely by inventing figures that we don't readily associate with that specific historical sequence. So one of them is the saint that we just discussed, the other one is the specter, okay? So... The most basic level the specter evokes is kind of like uh, the presence of an intangible uh, threat. Um, the, and the, you know, the specter for me, in the films that I analyze, um, evoke a collectivity that is not, not class-based, as it was for the worker, for instance, or, um, uh, or, or like, a, you know, like generational uh, in the way it was for the youth, for instance um the contours of this collectivity are blurred and this is done this is done by design um and you know the identity its extension even its powers are very remain very obscure and i associated this figure of the specter with the the trope of conspiracy which is uh, omnipresent in you know 60s and especially 70s uh, cinema not only uh, in Italy, you know, we can think about, you know, the paranoia thriller in uh, American cinema, for instance, think about you know, Parallax View, All, All the President's Men, and so forth, even Blowout, uh, for instance. <clears throat> and so, um, uh, I mean, it is well known at this point, uh, I mean, one could argue it was well known uh, also then, that Italy uh, was kind of like a uh, an arena for competing like plots, conspiracies, intrigues, uh, which involved not only the national elite of the country, but also foreign agents and especially uh, the presence of, you know, American secret services on uh, Italian soil and the influence that the American government Department of State had uh, in uh, Italian political uh, matters. Um, the state, in the sense, is the pivot of the action. And so, if in the other chapters I try to think about like radical antagonistic subjectivities, in the chapter on the specter, I'm more like thinking about the relationship between the state and the ways in which the state also subjectivizes itself uh, in uh, into an, uh, an agent of a political agent, uh, basically, <clears throat> and so. Um, uh, I mean, I look at films that are, to start off the, the, the chapter, I look at films that are very much indebted to the tradition of the American uh, paranoia thriller. So The Matei Affair uh, by Rosie, An Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion uh, by Petri, Illustrious Corpses, again by Rosie. So this is kind of like, the two, Rosie and Petri, are very much indebted to that kind of like, to the the set of conventions and the kind of like stylistic tropes of uh, American uh, cinema. And um, what I'm interested in is to kind of like highlight the political ambivalence of conspiracy, um, which can be like an agent for change, but it can also be an agent of reaction. Uh, And in a way, like in the films that I analyze, sometimes it is both at the same time, which is something that, you know, specifically uh, Italian cinema was able to think uh, uh, at the time. And then uh, when I move on to toward the end of the chapter, what I'm thinking about is trying to kind of like figure out is uh, what happens when uh, a specter is all that is left? Uh, What happens when, you know, conspiracies kind of like wane? And also when the stakes of a certain form of class struggle starts to disappear. Um, And what happens is that, you know, when, when, when a specter is all that is left, then you're kind of like stuck in this kind of like moment of melancholia. And so... Um, uh, you know, certain ideas of collective struggle become a thing of the past. And what we see in Italian cinema, specifically with a film like To Love the Damned by Marco Tullio Giordano, uh, Maledetti Viamero, is this kind of like spectrality of the militant. And so the militant is kind of like it's the leftover of the, you know, the momentous struggles of uh, the long 68. And when the militant is all that is left, and in this sense, it is a militant. Uh, precisely without a struggle and without a sight where to wage this class war um, then the militant itself is reduced to a kind of uh, to a kind of specter which kind of like is presented in the film in this kind of like very little literal way as haunting you know like uh, uh universities for instance or haunting like factories like emptied out abandoned uh, factories um <clears throat> And so this kind of like announces, I mean, uh, To Love the Damned was released in 1981, so it already announces the, the moment that we call uh, 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 reflusso, which you would translate with ebb, I think, um, uh, which is the moment in which a certain kind of like disenchantment with politics, a certain kind of like disengagement with radical politics and that atomization of society uh, takes place. So we're already on the tail end of the, the that specific season of radical struggles,
0: in a way. And this is kind of like the end of the chapter. And, and in the final chapter, you talk about the exhaustion of Italian political cinema. That's an interesting idea to me. And also, uh, how, how, how there's this declining of Italian bourgeoisie, which is manifested in the political cinema. Can you uh, talk about that aspect of the book? Yeah, so...
1: Um, I mean, it was kind of difficult to think about an end of political cinema because the way I theorize it, I mean, when something is grounded in this kind of like non-relation, you know, in a way, because like each film provides its own solution to the non-relation without ever actually solving it once and for all, um, you can't really have an end of political cinema, you know, because the impasse, the non-relation between cinema and politics is in a way solved and renewed every time. So I didn't really want to talk about an end of political cinema. What I want to talk about uh, it was kind of like an exhaustion uh, of a certain form of political cinema. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's not, I did not want to simply say, well, you know, the 1968 as a sequence ends, therefore Italian cinema kind of like, you know, the interest of Italian cinema in finding this kind of connection between cinema and politics also wanes, because that would be kind of like, uh, it would would run against the project of the book. I mean, if there is an exhaustion of political cinema, that exhaustion needs to be articulated and thought about through figures, which is the term that I kind of like set, the theoretical term that I set for myself uh, at the beginning of the book. And so what I wanted to look at is this kind of like really interesting figures that appear in a triptych of films um, um, uh, it, it, that comes out basically like in the mid-70s. Uh, one is uh, La Grande Bouffe, uh, La Grande Bufata by Marco Ferreri, 1973. Uh, then there's Paolo Pasolini's uh, uh, Salon, or The 120 Days of Sodom, uh, 1975, which is the last film that he made. Um, released uh, after he was he was killed, and then Eleopetro Stodolmoto from 1976. And uh, it's interesting to me because these films, which are seldom mentioned together in analysis of uh, Italian Italian cinema, are actually seems to me very very close and trying to uh, uh, think about the same thing, right? I mean, there is something that brings the three together, and the, the and it is precisely this idea of a state of exception. So all three films are the story of the institution of a certain kind of like state of exception. So in, in La Grande Bouffe, you have like four bourgeois men for France who lock themselves up in a, 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 a villa just outside of Paris and they eat themselves to death, right? Uh, in Salon, as you know, I'm, I'm sure we, most of us know, uh, uh, you have you know, four lords or four signori. Um, who kidnap and torture for 120 days uh, young men and women uh, uh, the, taken from the countryside um, uh, outside Bologna. Okay? And this happens in the last days of the uh, Repubblica di Salò, so the last stand of uh, you know, fascist existence, basically, uh, in, in Italy. And then, uh, in Elio Petri Stodomodo, we have the uh, cultural, political elite of the country is depicted as uh, uh, basically um, um, uh, locking themselves up in a sort of like I mean it's it's called a hotel in the in the film but it is kind of like a sanctuary in which uh, you have a mysterious priest played by Marcello Mastroianni who administers all the rights of, uh, you know, the the Jesuit um, um, uh, spiritual exercises, basically. So what we have is like the the very recognizable um, uh, figures of the Christian democracy, including Aldo Moro, um, who was then killed in 1978 by the Red Brigades, uh, who uh, kind of like gather in the sanctuary and... Uh, perform this kind of like not only this the, the rituals of the of the uh, uh, spiritual exercises but also kind of like they're at the center of a series of very mysterious conspiracies that are suggesting that their uh, the they're reign basically the rule over Italian politics is coming to an end and so in this state of exception, we have the suspension of like normal rules regular uh, um, uh, kind of like um uh, systems of you know like the uh, values and kind of like um uh, um, um, laws and so forth, and the institution of a new set of laws uh, that apply specifically to the the site in which the protagonists find themselves. And so, <clears throat> what we see here in all three of the the films is a kind of like undoing of uh, the three pillars of Italian society that sustained its growth uh, and controlled uh, its uh, antagonistic impulses. Uh, in the post-war period, starting after the post-war, the Second World War, so the post-war period. And the three uh, pillars, of course, are state, capital, and, and church. Okay? Um, and we see them, like, in, in, an, in a sort of, like, irreversible crisis. Um, the way in which I trace this crisis is through the three figures that I borrow from Walter, uh, Walter Benjamin's um, uh, discussion uh, on uh, the uh, German Baroque drama. So the tyrant for salon. Uh, the intriguer or conspirator or plotter uh, in um, todo modo, and then the martyr in uh, uh, in uh, uh, La Bouffe. Um And so, I mean, these three figures kind of like it's interesting to me because they also, um, you know, they, they they all kind of like share the state of exception, but they approach it in different ways. The state of exception, as as Benjamin says explicitly, it is is very much a matter of sovereignty so it needs to be understood as a kind of like moment of crisis of sovereignty basically and it seems to me that all the three films deal with this kind of like crisis of sovereignty in very different ways um, as precisely as a triptych so providing a kind of like a full panorama of the crisis of this sovereignty uh, in the in, in the in Italy in the in the 70s uh, so on the one hand you have in Salo the tyrant who fully submits in a kind of like perverse fashion to the law a law that they set for themselves signing the contract in the very beginning to kind of like ritualize all the you know the the torture the murdering the violence and so forth uh, <clears throat> you have the obsessional neurotic uh, that is the plotter or the conspirator the trigger Who tries to stave off the collapse of the law, so the collapse of sovereignty, uh, by way of this kind of like repetitive ritualistic actions, you know, which are exemplified in the film through the spiritual exercises, the Jesuit spiritual exercises uh, designed by uh, uh, Ignatius of Loyola. And then the psychotic in the end, who kind of like gives himself over to the death drive completely. Um, and, and this is his way of confronting the breakdown of the law. So basically kind of like a, a slow suicide, as we see in uh, The Martyrs, The Four Friends in uh, La Grande Bouffe. Um, <clears throat> to, to kind of like end the chapter, I try to think about how the figure suggests this exhaustion right, the exhaustion of political cinema. And to me, the exhaustion, again, kind of like drawing from Benjamin, um, is has everything to do with the question of allegory. So there is a moment in which Italian political cinema is no longer able to um, dramatize the rise of political subjectivities, to make visible the, the, the holes and hollow spaces of history, to give form to a historical moment of crisis and transition. And once they're, the, the the films are not able to do that anymore, they kind of like devolve into allegory. Uh, allegory being this form of representation, basically um, that remains as as fragmentary, incomplete, obscure. That can only in a way suggest uh, a world to come, without ever making it present or staging it properly, completely, uh, in. Um, in, uh, uh, in in their representations, uh, basically. And so I was interested in this idea of kind of like a landscape of ruins that uh, Benjamin talks about when he's thinking about allegory. And it seems to me that in the end, like all three films deal with this idea of kind of like a decay and collapse and, and crisis without really being able to provide like a coherent uh, depiction uh, of it. So basically from figure to allegory.
0: Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Mauro Resmino, for talking about your wonderful book on New Books Network and sharing your thoughts with us.
1: Thank you, Mortesa It was a pleasure.